You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you, the DU Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks Limit Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. Back in studio today with my co-host, Dr. Mike Brazier, and we are going to be breaking down more of the BPOP survey. Mike, how are you? I'm, I'm doing well, Chris. I'm actually uh, typing over here. I'm searching, searching for more information. I've had a chance to do more summarizations, all sorts of good stuff. Cool. Fired up. Mike has been fired up <laughs> the last few days, actually for the last week now. So where we left off, on our previous show regarding the waterfowl habitat and uh, breeding duck survey, we kind of left it where we were just starting to really get into some of the species. And we talked about mallards in depth, mid-continent type mallards. I think with this episode, we're going to go through a couple more of these species and, and talk about what these numbers actually mean or what, you know, the average waterfowl hunter can take from this. But also we're going to get into the Pacific Flyway and, you know, talk about what's going on out there, drought, and then we're going to roll into the Eastern Survey as well. We've got the Eastern Survey data right here in front of us. Uh, we'll dig into that a little bit. But Mike, to go ahead and kick it off, we're going to talk about a really bright spot on this survey and something that where you were just tip tap typing away and digging up data, blue wings. You know, yeah. people are excited to see that pretty good blue wing number. Blue wings are a really cool story over the past 20 or 30 years. Uh, before I get to the blue wing number, I am going to again acknowledge all the partners that are involved in this survey. U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Canadian Wildlife Service, state and provincial agencies. They are the ones that do all of the legwork, all of the air work to make this survey happen, produce the report, and then get it out. And, and we are the responsible for kind of communicating, helping to communicate it. So that's what our involvement is here. Blue wings, they are a bright spot in the waterfowl population world over the past uh, two or three decades. This year was no exception. You know, you can, uh, for that traditional survey area that we, that we spoke about, introduced last, on the last episode, look at our blue wing numbers for this year, 6.5 million. Uh, that's up from, it's up about a million, up about 20% from what was estimated in 2019. We obviously don't know what happened between those two years, but just the fact that blue wings were able to uh, you know, apparently eke out some production last year and the year before and brought that forward says a lot about their pioneering ability. You know, they, they go to where the water is every single year, whether it's in in the prairies. You know, they're a strictly prairie bird, although there were a large number kind of counted up in the northern part of one of the provinces this year, which I found was interesting. Maybe they're Like in the parklands area? Yeah, I'd have to pull up that that uh, chart. Actually, I have it right here. North, central and northern Alberta. Maybe I'd have to... I'd have to look into that to see. Maybe Fred can talk to us about mm -hmm. that whenever we have him with our, our one of our later episodes or live cast deal. So, yeah, blue wings remain a, a super bright spot in, in that regard. And to kind of drill in a little bit on exactly where those birds settle, uh, the eastern Dakotas, 3.2 million uh, birds, 3.2 million blue wings in the eastern Dakotas. And then when you look across, combine across the entire Dakotas and southern Manitoba, which is where all of that rainfall, that mm -hmm. late winter precipitation, early spring precipitation fell. I think we did this a minute ago. Is like f about 4 million blue wings settled in that wet landscape. Wow. That was about two-thirds of, of all that were counted. And that's a great recipe for good production, good to excellent production 
from Blue Wings because that that landscape was dry last year. It gave those mm-hmm. wetlands an opportunity to consolidate, uh, recycle some of that organic material, some of those nutrients, and so those wetlands should have just been brimming with lots of aquatic, lots of little aquatic bugs that that Blue Wings and their ducklings would have just uh, gone to town on. So. Really, really cool to see that the Eastern Dakota number of three point, basically 3.3 million that I mentioned was up 81% from its long-term average. They're just really cool as, as mm-hmm. a bird that responds to where that water is on that prairie landscape. And just curious, why don't some of the other species respond in the same fashion? Is it because, you know, they continue they're looking to return to the same little regions and areas and grass types, habitat types? And blue wings are just willing to go wherever the water is. You know, let's save that question for someone that's a little bit more knowledgeable. Because right. yeah, no, it's going to relate to life history strategies yeah. of these different ducks. I think it's going to be blue wings are going to be on the really fast spectrum, high productivity, low survival, survival mm-hmm. rate. And that, there's just a lot that kind of goes into that. And I, that's a great question. Uh, and I will save that one for someone who is better at me in answering that particular why question. Cool. Well, yeah. Well, that's, you know, one thing everyone kind of took away from the the immediate results of the survey was that blowing number, you know, really jumped out at people. And yeah. I think I think that that's going to be hopefully with, you know, good production. Yep. You know, we'll, we'll be able to benefit from that from a waterfowler's perspective. Um one, the next species, I'm, we'll just t- b- touch briefly on this, uh, canvasback, you know, down 10% from 2019, but only 1% from the long-term average. Um, what does that number mean to you? Well, I don't know if you did that intentionally, but that is an absolutely fantastic contrast to blue wings in terms of life history that we were talking about. Canvasbacks in the duck world are going to be more on that I don't want to get too technical, but they're going to have higher annual survival rate on average. They're going to have lower productivity on uh, on average, and they're sort of a those things are related. Species that have have higher more have lower survival or higher mortality uh, during a given year on average are more likely to have higher reproductive rates. Just, they just kind of have to mm-hmm. as a way to perpetuate that population. There's some trade offs there that work uh, with one another as to. They help explain one another, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But yeah, canvasbacks are a uh, are a species that that is tied to some of the more stable wetlands uh, in in that prairie landscape. They're a prairie nesting species. You will find some surveyed in some of the other regions, but predominantly they're found in the prairies associated with those uh, semi permanent wetlands, cattail rimmed and we uh, wetlands. And we talked to Mike Anderson last year about some of that. Uh, Doctor Canvasback, I think we called him, and he's been studying and surveying canvasbacks for I think close to forty years and. Uh, he made some great observations, and I won't try to recapture all of what he what he talked about there, but he did say last year he expected very low production out of canvasbacks. And so one thing that happens really with all duck species when they have low nesting activity during a given year, there's typically higher survival. Uh, there's because they're not as exposed as long as many times uh, to predation, and so that may have been what we saw last year is, is perhaps higher over summer survival for canvasbacks. Uh, some of them might have chosen to not breed at all. You know, recalling some of what um, Dr. Anderson was telling us about how dry those wetlands were, and even some of those semi-permanent wetlands, if they weren't completely dry, maybe that water didn't reach up into the vegetation and canvasbacks are an overwater nesting species. And so a lot of them would have probably kind of, uh, might've, might've chosen to forego nesting. They are a species because they're tied to those, those more permanent wetlands, semi-permanent wetlands, they show a much higher degree of phytopatry. That's in contrast to bluings. And, you know, but the, the other thing, the result of that is that we don't see wild fluctuations from year to year in the population levels of that particular species. But uh, that number this year, about a half million canvasbacks, close to 600,000 estimated, that's a good number when you combine it with the knowledge that water returned to essentially the heart of their breeding range. There's some parts of their breeding range that were left out of some of that abundant precipitation, but they should return to some really good habitat that means that we should expect some pretty good production from canvasbacks. Cool. And in other species that we touched on briefly um, in our previous episode, and we won't get in into the weeds on this, um, but, you know, that the redhead number jumped out on the chart 
you know, plus 35% over, you know, from the 2019 number, plus 30% on the long-term average. Um, that's good indicator for, you know, what we're, you know, I, I guess it's just a good sign for, you know, the layman who's looking at this and just like, oh, cool, redhead numbers are up. But what does that mean to you? Well, it means that redheads continue to be another one of those uh, one of those species whose po- overall population remains healthy. Uh, Dr. Anderson, Dr. Mike Anderson also, also talked about redheads because they have uh, they're they're closely tied to canvasbacks in terms of the type of wetlands that they use for breeding habitat. Redheads can can use I, I think a, a bit wider range of those those wetland types, and they may may be a bit more prone to pioneer or to move around to different landscapes that are wet, not nearly the way blue wings are, but perhaps a bit more than canvasbacks are. Uh, redheads, I'm looking here, and I'll actually try to do a, a little comparison here. Um, yeah, that's probably, I probably don't want to, those numbers aren't that significant. But I guess what I'll say is that redheads were counted in abundance in the eastern Dakotas and southern Manitoba, about about 500,000 of that, yeah, about half of that estimated population was counted in southern Manitoba and the eastern Dakotas where the majority of that rain, that precipitation was. Uh, so that's a good thing. Collectively, I would say those are, that the estimate in those two survey regions is going to be, oh, wow, about 80% above average, something like that, wow. you know, so that's a, that's a great thing to see. It means redheads found that water, found those those high-quality wetlands that have just been recharged, and we should also expect good production out of redheads this year. Population remains healthy. Overall, still above the long-term average. Nothing to be, uh, nothing to be concerned about there. It's really, really good to see redheads and cans both continuing to do well despite the drought of last year. Yeah, and we'll bounce around real quick with a couple quick species. You know, we mentioned offline, you know, we didn't really get into the boreal much. And so we've got the boreal breeding species or predominantly boreal breeding species where you got your widgeon, green winged teal, even scop we'll put in there. Um, you know, the numbers on green winged teal jumped off the chart, th- that down 32% from mm-hmm. 2019. Um, widgeon down 25%, down 19% overall for long term. And then your scop, really no change from 2019, but continue remaining down on that long term average. Um, what do those numbers mean to you? I I don't know. <laughs> that green wing number is going to be one that a lot of waterfowl biologists are talking about. And I don't have a great answer. Um, it is a species that is definitely more closely tied to the boreal, but you do see a lot of a lot of green wings nesting in the prairies as well. Mm-hmm. They probably transcend that prairie boreal. Uh, area more than, let's say, widgeon or scop do. Those two yeah. species are going to be a little bit more closely tied to the boreal. Uh, so there is a bit more annual fluctuation in the green wing, green wing chart that I'm looking at here. Uh, and, and I don't know. I would, I would have to talk to somebody else about that you know, to, to offer a, a, a great explanation. Again, as I said on, I think, the, the last episode, try not to get too caught up in a single year change, uh, at least in terms of being overly concerned or overly complacent about or overly rejoiceful about. Who would make Facebook comments if you weren't overreacting well, to an annual Well, I know. Change. I'm not doing a good job here. But one thing I will say is I have heard from our scientist out in uh, out in California, our boreal uh, specialist, Dr. Fritz Reed, and he said, yeah, we've seen this type of thing before. He's the type of person that I would want to talk to to try mm-hmm. to get some more detailed explanation on this. He said, we've seen this before. He said, a lot of times what happens happens, not a lot of times, sometimes what can happen is that if, especially if we have a delayed spring in northern latitudes, sometimes in those years, the survey timing may not be optimal for estimation of some of those boreal nesting species. I'm not exactly sure the why on that. You know, what is it about that survey methodology that becomes suboptimal in those years where we have a delayed spring at at some of the more northern boreal latitudes? But that was definitely the case this year. We've, uh, I think Fritz offered that he heard in some places the spring was delayed by up to, um, up to four weeks. And, you know, that this, 
This survey is conducted over, it covers 2 million square miles, the, the representative areas, 2 million square miles. And they, they time it kind of based on what they're seeing in the field. And you got to recognize these species have different nesting chronologies. Not all of them are nesting at exactly the same time. And you have all that nesting uh, occurring across a vast landscape that varies by thousands of miles north to south and east to west. And you sometimes in some years, the survey timing is optimal across the board. In some years, it's optimal for some species and locations and suboptimal. Doesn't mean it's bad, just means it's suboptimal for other species and locations. And it sounds like there's some thought that maybe that was the case yeah. for, for green wings and perhaps widgeon too, um, because uh, because we've we heard so many reports about that late ice out and late spring, uh, certainly in those far northern areas. It was late, the late spring in general, but uh, it held on up in the northern latitude. So that's about the best I yeah. can do. So basically you're saying you don't have to panic about this. It, right definitely now. don't panic. At, what is our green wing number relative to the long-term average there? Yeah, and there's, there are species that can, that can uh, produce at a high rate yeah. when conditions are right for them, and they may produce at a high rate this year because boreal conditions are – or very well, or, mm -hmm. or, or, or quite good. It could be that that number, let me look at the was, confidence interval on that. There's 0% change over the long-term average. Okay, so 0%, yeah, you're right, 0% change over the long-term. Um, I don't have the confidence interval on that right here, but um, but anyway, it's uh, not it's not a species to be concerned about. Just four years, four or five years ago, we were at like record high mm -hmm. for that uh, for that bird, and yeah. So now we're back at the average. So let's wait and see what happens in the next couple of years. And this could be with 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 good conditions in parts of the prairies where they may have nested. Uh, from, let me see what that says here. Yeah, most of those northern Saskatchewan, southern Alberta, southern Saskatchewan. Yeah, so. Um, most mostly still in the boreal. Boreal yeah. conditions were good to excellent, so should be good production out of out of green wings. Good, cool. Well, let's kind of transition this, and you know, we we mentioned going flyway to flyway. Before we do that, let's cover. I, I do have something I want to say about the other group of of species that, or sort of the collection of species that are so closely tied to the prairies. A lot of our conservation planning in the prairies of the U.S. and Canada, especially DU Canada's work, they look at the five most common duck species in that, in that landscape as a really good index of, of what's going on and, and what our planning needs to look like, what our conservation needs to look like. And so those five species are, can you name them? Mallard. Yep. Gadwall. Yep. Northern Shoveler. Yep. Northern Pintail. And? Campus Bay. Nope. Blue Wing. Oh, Blue Wing. I looked right past Right, there. right. So, I'm Mallard, looking at the chart and I'm going through and I looked right past Blue Wing. Yeah, yeah. So, Mallard, Gadwall, Blue Wing, Northern Shoveler, Pintail. So, let's take Pintail out of that because we know their population is way down and we know that's a species of concern. It has been a species of concern for, for several decades now. We covered that on the previous episode. But let's look at the combined estimate for those other four predominantly prairie nesting species. Of course, mallards will go all the way up, but nevertheless, they do benefit greatly from, from healthy prairies. So combined over those four, those four species, 19.4 million. Compare that to 2019, where it was when it was a 21.8, so only 10% down from that number. And, and let's be honest, nobody goes out just hunting for gadwall, and they're not going to pass up on shovelers or, mm -hmm. or blue wing or pintail or mallard, right? So this this discussion of here about a combined uh, group of birds is is certainly relevant, both from a kind of continental population health standpoint as well as a hunter interest standpoint. So down 10% collectively from 2019 relative to the long-term average, collectively they're up 10%. That's mm. going to be, that 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 will reflect the continued health or long-term health of shovelers, gadwall, blue wings, and well, and, and mallards are, are good too, you know. So um, that's a that's something to, to take note of. We've seen a lot of comments and heard a lot of people asking questions, should we be concerned about this, about what's happening here? No, we shouldn't be concerned because we expected this based on last year's very, very dry prairies uh, and even some dryness in the previous two years in parts of the prairie. Um, we 
Uh, we shouldn't be concerned because it was expected. We shouldn't be concerned because we know that a lot of that prairie landscape was rewetted this year by some precipitation. That's going to set the stage for good production for the, all those species that settled in, in the prairies. And it's that fall flight, which is a result of the bee pop and production, that is what hunters will see coming south this fall. So it should be a great production year for birds in the prairies. Uh, let's see what it is. I'm already eager to see what the, the bee pop's going to be next year to, to see if our our, <laughs> our talking points here. You got a year uh, away. That's right. That's right. So, yeah, that that's a uh, another kind of bright spot to look forward to in terms of their overall health and what we could expect in terms of production this summer. So two final points here, just sort of wrap up the discussion of the prairies. First is that we've been here before. We even had a magazine article recently where we talked about this, the ups and downs of waterfowl populations. And as long as we retain that intact habitat on that landscape, the ducks are going to bounce back. And I think we're going to see that this year. Also, when we talked about this last Friday when we did a little quick episode, is that the drought of last year should be viewed and could be viewed as a simulation of what will happen to duck populations if we lose those intact basins. Kind of think about that extreme drought as an effective simulator of permanent habitat loss. You know, over the short term, when drought occurs, those wetlands go dry. That's the same thing that we will see if we lose those wetlands to continue drainage or if that, that grassland cover goes away through additional conversion. So that's why it is, it's important for Ducks Unlimited to continue doing the things that we do to protect and conserve those wetlands and grasslands up there in the prairies. It's that landscape that really drives these continental duck populations. Yeah, so that's, I think that's a good place to go ahead and make that transition and start discussing. You wanted to really kind of dig into the Pacific Flyway. Um, so let's go ahead and kick that off where... You know, we're uh, everyone around DU, um, pretty much throughout the country, is very aware of the water conditions, especially in California, um, Klamath Basin. And we talked about that. You've hosted several podcasts about that. Um, but talk about what the BPOP, how you can translate the BPOP and in, in, into how this will potentially impact the Pacific Flyway. Matt talked about this yesterday and in, <clears throat> in how he set up those articles that he would always write. And that you can look across these survey regions and based on the data that we've collected over the years, a lot of it from band recovery data, also from telemetry data, seeing where birds, uh, where the harvest in a given state is derived from, which breeding region it's derived from. And so there we can, therefore we can, we can talk about which of these survey numbers is going to be most important for Pacific Flyway hunters. And that very thing is also used to set waterfowl regulations in the Pacific Flyway. I can't remember if I said it on the previous episode, but there are, two, there are three overall harvest frameworks in place in the U.S. There is a Pacific Flyway, yes, yeah, a Pacific Flyway framework, which is informed by the status of, uh, of mallards in the western U.S., western stock of mallards. There's the overall harvest framework for the Mississippi and Central Flyways informed by the status of ponds and mallard populations in the, uh, the mid-continent. In that traditional survey area, well, it's a, a portion of the traditional survey area, and then there's the Atlantic Flyway Harvest Framework, which is uh, determined by the collective status of four species. We'll get into those here a little, mm -hmm. little bit later on. So, back to the Pacific Flyway, we can look at uh, at the the source of some of those quote Western birds, and we'll get to the other topic of drought, you know, basically down in those, uh, within the, the Pacific Flyway itself. That's important not only from a breeding standpoint this year, but certainly from a non-breeding migration standpoint. Uh, Alaska is a region, Alaska, a little small survey segment in the Yukon Territory, is a is a, a region of interest to Pacific Flyway hunters. Uh, Alaska overall has been faring pretty well. Yeah, that's, Alaska that's, kicks out some ducks. They do, they do. And that's a story, actually a story in itself, so I won't go too far down that road. There's people much more knowledgeable about that longer-term trend in waterfowl populations in Alaska and what's going on there and what's driving it. And so let's save the specifics of that. What I'll do is just kind of report on what we get when we sum across the survey regions that the data tell us are primarily responsible for birds harvested in the Pacific Flyway. That's going to be Alaska and then a small portion of the Yukon Territory, northern Alberta, southern Alberta, uh, survey regions in British Columbia, and then locally produced birds in California, Oregon, and Washington. Each of those three states conduct breeding population surveys, and they were all conducted this year. So when you take those regions and sum them up, 
we're looking at total ducks here, we get 15.8 million this year. That compares to, I didn't do 2019 yet. We're just looking at the long-term average uh, at relative, because I, I think there's probably more to be informed there um, when we kind of think about this, both from overall health standpoint, because the, with, with exception of Alberta, there weren't, you know, this, the, the source of these, um, of these ducks wasn't affected by the prairie drought. Now, certainly affected by the western drought, but we get 15.8 million total ducks across those survey regions this year in the spring. Compare that to the long-term average of 17.1 million, so only down about 8%. So, and there's some confidence, there's some error around that, so you can probably consider that about average. Uh, let's look at individual species that are of gonna, that are going to be of interest. And one thing to note here, locally produced mallards are going to be, uh, based on what we know from the data, disproportionately abundant for hunters in California. I think last I saw, about 60% of the mallards harvested in California are locally produced. So their numbers, those local numbers from California, Oregon, Washington are going to be important to those, those hunters. And I'll touch on that here real quick. Long-term average for mallards, mallard breeding population size in California is 334,000. A, a lot of people probably don't realize there's about 300,000 mallards on average breeding in California, wow. right? Or yeah. a breeding population mm -hmm. of that size. This year, the estimated breeding population size of mallards was 180,000. So that's a pretty big drop, not yeah. quite 50% drop. And that's um, just based a lot on the lack of water. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's, I, mean, it, I would say it's... I think they were kind of expecting that. Absolutely, to be they were. Down. Yep, that's not unexpected at all. I'm actually kind of surprised it was that high. Mm -hmm. Now, with all 180,000 of those actively breeding, don't know about that. So even even with that BPOP, uh, for that state, we would not expect great production out of those birds. Uh, California, Oregon and Washington, their, their mallard populations are a little bit smaller on average, about 90,000 each. And so their estimates from this year were about average. Uh, there's probably no statistical significance between the numbers that they counted from their long-term average. So from a locally produced mallard standpoint in Washington and Oregon, probably shouldn't expect too much different from, difference from what you normally get. Those states are probably going to get a little bit more of their, their mallard harvest from other regions than, than let's say California does. Uh, and so now let's look at the combined mallard breeding population estimate across all those survey regions that are really important to the West. We get 2.9 million mallards in the breeding population compared to the long-term average of 3.2. The majority of those come from, on average, uh, Alaska and northern Alberta. There's about a million on average in southern Alberta that are going to be important to the Pacific Flyway hunters. So um, down about 10% from the long-term average. So with exception of locally produced birds, you're probably not going to, uh, shouldn't expect a, a great deal of difference, you know, from, from what you normally do. And I think wetland conditions, habitat conditions outside of California were, uh, and Alberta were, southern Alberta, I should say, were we're probably pretty good. Yeah. So a little bit of a bright spot or a little bit of a, I don't know, bright spot, neutral spot there, you might say. Uh, Northern Pintail combined across three survey areas, Alaska, Northern Alberta, Southern Alberta, you're looking at a 21% decline from the long-term average. Pintails in, in Alaska have been doing better than Pintails in the prairies. So that decline that we that we see there is primarily driven by the, the, the decline in the prairies there. Widgeon, they're another species that's going to be pretty important out there. Uh, they were down, their count was down 26%, 27% from the long-term average across those three survey regions. And then green-winged teal, um, this is, let me see if, yeah, this is interesting. They actually were up 11% across those three survey regions. And again, when we say that about widgeon and green wings, you know, you kind of go, got to go back to that, what I mentioned just a minute ago about perhaps suboptimal timing yeah. of that survey. Um, so long-term perspective, nothing to be concerned about. I, 
always get a default to sort of expect an average year, you know, because yeah. you have to factor in how far are we from the long-term average and then what are habitat conditions like that would feed production. With exception of areas in the Intermountain West that have been been profoundly influenced by drought, um, and I guess we would also throw southern Alberta into that, uh, you'd probably expect average population sizes, average production in those areas. So the biggest concern for a lot of Pacific Flyway hunters, uh, I sh- California and other Intermountain West hunters, I should say, I think Oregon and Washington folks will be okay because they have more, uh, they're not as affected by that drought. But one of the biggest concerns for hunters in California and other in- portions of the Intermountain West, Salt Lake, Great yeah, Salt Lake. I was going to say, we, we talked about California a lot, right, but Klamath. we don't really mention Utah and the Salt Lake. That's right. I mean, that's that's a- right. Their biggest concern is going to be having water to hunt over, to attract ducks and to hunt over. And we're going to have people in studio. Virginia Getz is going to be a a guest on a future episode here. We will get a uh, we'll get a zoomed in look on the status of California here in a month or maybe two months or so and uh, I don't know if we have anything lined up for any of the other regions, but we will. Uh, yeah, Salt Lake that'd be a great one to talk mm-hmm. about. As Absolutely. Well. So. Yeah, that's about all I have on the Pacific Flyway. What do we, what did I leave out there? I think you covered pretty much all of it. I mean, that's, it just provided a pretty good picture and also a solid reminder um, that you're looking at these long term averages with way more significance than that year to year number that people can look. And again, you're digging through the chart a little yeah. more than what was on the original chart. Yeah. That's a good point to make that, you know, if you really want to dig into these numbers, if you're a Pacific Flyway hunter, you can dig into this chart and, oh, yeah. and get much more in depth information, even what we provided here. There's, Still more. You can dig into the chart and you can also dig into these little summaries of regional habitat conditions. They break it down by survey region. I'm just looking through here. Uh, you can find Alaska and the Yukon Territory. Alaska experienced above average snowfall in a very dry spring of 2022. So it gives you that type mm-hmm. of additional information if you really want to understand it. Uh, talks about wildfire activity. Waterfowl production was expected to be good across the region. You know, yeah. that's Alaska and the Yukon Territory. And typically they, the, the, the pilot bi- biologists that write these little descriptions will offer up s- their sort of personal expectation of what, uh, what, what production should, yeah. might be mm-hmm. you know, based on the habitat conditions. Mike, let's take a quick break and we'll return and go and get into the Eastern Survey. Sounds good to me. And your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. So let's let's kick off the Eastern Survey. Uh, you know this this information is uh, you know we, we present it in a very similar fashion than what we do our you know main traditional survey area chart. Um, so those who are looking can find this information on ducks.org/slash/ducknumbers. Um, you can look at the same chart that we're looking at here as we go through. Um, but the Eastern Survey area, before we get too far into it, Mike, I think you did a really good job of explaining what the traditional survey area is. But go ahead and explain what the Eastern Survey area is. Yep, I'll do that. And I think we covered this yesterday. Briefly, yep. yeah. yeah. And and it is the eastern, it's the eastern <laughs> half of this big survey region. Uh, two million square miles, two million square miles covered by the overall survey encompassed in this in this report. The eastern survey area, hmm, I should look this up. I don't know what percentage of that two million square miles it's going to cover. It's not going to be quite half of it, but it's essentially all of eastern Canada from, uh, from I think it includes most of Ontario all the way to the Maritime provinces. Um, And then there are also some states in the U.S. that conduct surveys, I think from Virginia north to Maine, that conduct breeding waterfowl surveys. Some of their estimates are in here 
And yeah, so it the the data from the Eastern Survey area is important. I mean, for for a number of reasons, we're dealing with different groups of birds that have some phytopatry to those Eastern Survey areas, those Eastern breeding regions. But um, as I mentioned a little while ago, these data are what inform harvest frameworks for the Atlantic Flyway. The four species that are now used to inform harvest frameworks for the Atlantic Flyway are green wings, golden eyes, both common and barrows, wood ducks, and ringneck ducks. So those four species, species groups, I say, you know, golden eyes and captures two species there, are what are used to set those regulations. And there's a, uh, th- those harvest frameworks, and there's a, there's an entire explanation for why that was done. We actually spoke with a couple of people this past January, I think it was, about that that entire process, why that happened, how it came to be, and then how they go about it. So I encourage you to go back and listen to that. Uh, mallards, black ducks, are, are harvest regulations for those two species are set within that framework. Um, and there are some pretty interesting things to talk about with respect to mallard numbers in the eastern survey area, eastern mallards as we as we call them, and uh, and black ducks as well. Uh, so yeah, yeah. I think before we dive into the species, I think something to point out to there may be some members of our audience or and some people out there, and I know there are, that you know that eastern Canada is there's no prairie there. These are not right. these are not prairie right. breeding birds. And I think that's something to point out because, you know, we talk so freely about the prairie and prairie Canada, but when you transition, you know, further east, that it's it's almost boreal. Yeah. You know, it's, oh, it is. Yeah. I it, mean it, it, it is and so yeah, it is boreal. So, you know, it's it's a lot different habitat here. So uh, I just want, you know, people to keep that in mind as you kind of visualize what this Eastern Survey area looks like. Yeah, and I pulled up the map here because I was kind of scrambling for that map to make sure I knew which portion of Ontario was in the Eastern Survey area. It's mostly the eastern portion of, of Ontario, southern and southwestern Ontario is in there, and then Quebec, and then all, all the way over to the Maritime provinces. But when you look at that map, the only state that shows up by that map, I'm talking about the one in this report, shows the Eastern Survey area in green, traditional survey area in yellow. Uh, the only state that you see in that the Eastern Survey area is Maine. But when you dig into the numbers, you will see that estimates from the, the state surveys from Virginia uh, up to Maine are also included in these numbers. So there's real close coordination between the states and the feds over there in the way they conduct that survey. And there's, I would encourage folks to even look into the different methodology that is used for that survey uh, in the eastern portion. I want to say they use helicopters. I, it's not the same. They they use some of the same type of, of aircraft, but then I want to say they have some plot surveys that they also include in this. And I'll confess to you know, not being... Um, an expert by any means on survey methods and survey history in the Eastern survey area, um, just because of where I grew up and the type of work that I, that I did uh, from some, for some of my graduate re- research, I became a little bit more familiar with the way things were done in the traditional survey area. But yeah, it's, it's, it is a, uh, an equally rigorous survey because it is a forested landscape. It presents a few more challenges and they, they use a few different methods to ensure uh, a, a high degree of confidence in these, in these estimates. So it's, it, it's a tremendous undertaking, just the same as everything is in the, in the traditional survey area. So let's talk about some of these species and uh, you know, and we talked about it yesterday briefly that uh, this Eastern survey was really kind of a bright spot. You know, yeah. everyone was like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. You know, that's great. So so what was your initial reaction when you saw the, you know, mallards up 15% from 2019? And because and, I know that was, you know, that's been a topic of discussion in the Atlantic Flyway. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of things there. I'll, I'll back up and say the those habitats in the eastern survey area are generally more stable than the prairie prairie region. I mean, they're, they're boreal. It's at least in Canada, we're talking largely boreal. There are some agricultural landscapes, especially in Southwestern Ontario. Let's not, uh, let's not overlook that. Those areas are surveyed. There are ducks there. They do breed there. But as you get North into the majority of that survey region, it's boreal. Wetlands are much more stable from year to year. They're not, and kind of as a consequence, they don't, 
their productivity doesn't fluctuate as much as we see from some of those prairie wetlands. In some cases, the soils aren't as productive. And so by extension, the wetlands aren't as productive from a nutrient standpoint and invertebrate production standpoint. But make no, make no mistake, there are a lot of really productive wetlands over there that support a lot of ducks. And with that kind of understanding of what that landscape, what those habitats look like, we don't expect and we don't see great year-to-year variation in population, um, in, in pop- breeding populations from really any of the species that we see there. In, and if you look at the graphs that are in this report for those eastern surveyed species, you, that's what you see is mm-hmm. not as much variation. So we didn't expect as much variation out of the eastern survey area estimates this year, and and we didn't see it uh, and because it wasn't affected by the prairie drought, obviously. So, uh, so I want to – you want to jump right into the mallard, eastern yeah, mallard deal? Yeah, let's do it. All right, let's do it. it is, I'm it not is, scared. It is a species that is definitely of concern. There's been a sort of long-term – Decline and a few years ago there was a pretty steep decline over over a number of years. That's what triggered some of the changes to their harvest management frameworks in the Atlantic Flyway, as they saw some pretty concerning declines over a short period of time. And they were like, "Well, let's let's rethink how we're doing this." And then, meanwhile, let's do some real intensive focus and research to try to understand what's going on with eastern mallards. So, uh, for I guess the past few years. The harvest regulations for eastern mallards have been restrictive. I think only two mallards have been allowed. I think only one of which can be a hen. And so, you know, that's get, that gets a lot of people talking. When you when you go from four to two, it gets a lot of people's interest and attention in that in that species. This year, the population was estimated across that eastern survey area region at 1.2 million, which is up 16 percent from 2019 when it was one just over a million. So that's you're looking at about a 200,000 bird change there. That's not a highly significant kind of outcome. And then you look at it relative to the long-term average, it's basically similar to the long-term average, down 2.2%, but that's not going to be a statistically significant change. But the upshot is that given the overall harvest framework that is that is recommended in this adaptive harvest management report for the Atlantic Flyway um, in 23-24. We're talking about next year. I want to be very clear about that. 23-24, the recommended regulatory framework is liberal. And given the mallard number that they're seeing here and given the, the model that they're using to determine their optimal regulatory package or recommendation for uh, for Mallard, the Fish and Wildlife Service will recommend for 23-24 a four-bird bag, two of which can be hens. That's 23-24. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to be ultra clear on that. For this year, and that's just the recommended framework. That's yeah. right. For 22-23, I believe they're still operating under a restrictive framework, two Mallards, only one of which can be a hen. But check your local state-level yeah. you, restrictions. I'm not saying every anything time. about regulations that's right. that we're I gonna, don't know about. That's right. We're going to have um, – we're going to have – try to get some folks on a little bit later on because the Atlantic Flyway uh, Council Technical Committee has a communication group that is that is working on a communication document about this really important change in what their recommendation is going to be because they want to be very clear about communicating to hunters – when this would go into effect. And, and and as you mentioned, a lot has to happen. The only thing that's presented right now is, is an indication of what the Fish and Wildlife Service's recommendation will be to the state this, for 23-24. The states will then engage in that conversation and they will submit in consultation with the Fish and Wildlife Service their respective recommendation, well, their collective recommendation, and then it goes through an entire process, a public comment. It has to um, – I don't know, the sequence of these events I'll probably get wrong, but it, it ultimately has to pass through approval by the Service Regulations Committee, and a number of steps have to be taken before it, it becomes the official federal recommendation for 23-24, and then the states have to implement that at their – in their respective states. They can always be more res- restrictive than federal regulations. They can't just be more more liberal. But anyway, that was that that's a, a notable thing. You know, it's kind of like what happened a few years ago when 
they saw a change in the black duck population that triggered a, and maybe they, maybe it was concurrent with some new modeling that they had done for harvest management decisions that caused them to liberalize the black duck um, bag limit. And so they produce these communication pieces on occasion to, to make sure people aren't left in the dark on what's going on, what the objectives are for harvest management and how that triggers certain decisions based on the criteria that they're using to assess the status of the population and what the likely harvest is going to be. And it's, there's, a, there's a ton of information that goes into all these, and we've covered some of it on previous episodes. Um, so look for that uh, next year. Again, check your regulations this year, uh, uh, to your state-specific regulations, to make sure you're up to date and aware of what you're operating under this year. Absolutely. So let's run through some some more of these species on this chart. And I think, you know, again, you, like you said, the variance isn't there, but but that black duck number, you know, up 9%, that's, you know, that's just a good sign, even if, it, if it's not that statistically right. significant. I think people look at that and they're like, oh, that's awesome. You know, so... Um, you know, other things like the green wing teal up, but still down from the long-term average. I think there's a misconception of how much the green wing teal impacts that Atlantic flyway, you know, the bag over the Atlantic flyway hunter. Um, so, you know, all of those, you know, could be looked at as, as good news, even if it's not as significant. So the, absolutely. The, the black duck number is, is good. Mm -hmm. It's good. If you go back about five, 10 years, especially if you go back 20 years, there was a time where that species was, was the topic, was the number one topic. We were concerned about the, the, the sustainability of that population, of that species. We appear to have reached a point where at least over the past few years, where that that species has kind of stabilized and it's it's doing it's doing well. That's I I, I can't I can't kind of overemphasize how how good it is to see a healthy black duck population. Now, I would I would love to see black ducks come back to Mississippi so I could hunt them in the mm -hmm. in, in, in in winter and and they still do make no mistake they still do but I remember growing up having opportunities to to shoot fair number of black ducks uh, every other year so uh, I don't see as many. We shot of them quite anymore. a few of them in Indiana. Yeah. We were, oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. And and that's uh that's another one of those species. I don't want to get off too far down this road, but that's another one of those species whose movements and distributions during that winter period are affected by a whole host of factors, and we've seen a little bit of change there. But nevertheless, in the eastern U.S., having a healthy black duck population is, is a fantastic thing. Yep. That's awesome. Uh, we kind of touched briefly on the green wing. Um, we could scroll through that, you know, percent change from the long-term average was down 10%. Um, still, I don't know with that habitat type and, and would you consider that to be significant or still, hey, good news. What's that? The green wing? The green wing number. Yeah, yeah. I would probably, I'd have to look into this that Certainly the one year or the, the change from 2019 is not going to be significant, whether it's that, whether that decline, that 9% decline from the long-term average is going to be significant. I'd have to look into that. Chances are it's not going to be because you're looking at 320,000 estimated in this year. And then the long-term average is 350,000. So no, I wouldn't imagine that's yeah. statistically significant. If, you know, if it is, it's, it's not by a, a huge number of birds. Uh, golden eyes were up uh, from 19 similar to the long-term average. Mergansers, you know, for the people that, that get excited about mergansers, you know, uh, you can you can smile a little bit. Their population is um, is kind of, is, is hanging in there. It's about 900,000 estimated, up 13%, up 20% from the long-term average. So those merganser specialists, uh, yeah, have Adam. And I think, yeah. You jumped over the ringneck. Everyone's favorite ringneck. Were you, uh, ring were you circling good. back around? To oh, that did one? I? Yeah, you skipped well, over. Well, we'll circle back to the ringneck the way it circles back to the decoy there once you, you drop one on. How's that sound? <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> what, what does it look like here? 600 and something thousand. That's about down. That's down 10% from 2019, but probably not much difference from their long-term average. Down 7% from the LTA, but you're only looking at a, a difference of 50,000 birds there. So uh, the average hunter's got not going to notice that difference. And here's a question I'm going to spring on you. This is a comment from uh, our Instagram page that um, I keep an eye on. You know, we talk about all these species. Why do we not, throughout the entire country, 
Why is there no survey for wood ducks or sea ducks? Are you reading my mind? No, but maybe. I was just you flipping probably jotted down the, the same comment that no, I saw. Okay. No, I, uh, I I saw the comment. Mm-hmm. I saw the comment in several places. Yeah, and I saw some replies, some very educated replies to those individuals from someone that I I don't just from some of our very well educated duck hunters who under who who get excited about this stuff and who dig into it. And I think that's so awesome. I wish everyone did that. Wood ducks are not included in the surveys. Uh, the, the surveys that we've been talking about for so long because they're just so difficult to see, observe, and, est- and, and, and count reliably from these aerial platforms because they're inhabiting forested mm-hmm. environments, right? Yeah. And by the time the surveys, well, yeah, I guess that, that their, their breeding season would span such a large period of time and they're just really difficult to estimate from, from, yeah. from, from surveys. But... There are information available that uh, that I was actually trying to find here, trying to figure out exactly what all pieces of data they use to estimate wood duck populations to inform that harvest framework in the Atlantic Flyway mm-hmm. because you can't inf- have a species informing a harvest framework unless you have data for that species, right? So the, the Fish and Wildlife Service and the, and the state partners over the Atlantic Flyway have, in fact, developed methods to use different data sets to estimate annual wood duck populations. I think they probably use banding data. They might use breeding bird survey data. I'm not sure what else they they use. Um, I think they may have even investigated the use of eBird data. I could be wrong on that, but it's somewhere in this big report. Uh, Actually, let me look at this here. So we have harvest estimates for wood ducks annually in this report. What do you think the the average harvest rate for wood ducks is? I'm, I'm not, not even now, now I'm in the Atlantic Flyway. Or? Uh, this would be in the in Eastern Canada, Annually. in the U.S. I'm throwing one on you. Hundred thousand. No, the the harvest rate. Oh, the harvest rate. Oh, I don't know. Fifteen percent. Fifteen percent. So that's the type of information you can get from the from the appendices. So that's the, uh, what I'm looking for. Or the or the the population. So when you say harvest rate of fifteen percent, yep. So you're saying that fifteen percent. Of the bag limits of Atlantic flyway hunters or no, no, consisting no. No, of okay no, that's like, yeah that's yeah. what I was just like define that harvest rate yeah harvest rate is the percent basically the percentage of the population that is harvested oh, okay during yeah. fall and winter the percentage okay. of the fall population yeah. that is that is harvested uh, about fifteen percent so I am looking is this estimated population size I believe it is. Wood ducks. Here we go. About a million is the estimated population size in that, uh, in the eastern, in eastern Canada and the U.S. in the Atlantic Flyway states. Um, so yeah, wood duck estimate using the methods that they have here fluctuates right around a million birds. Um, and I'd have to look into this to really see what data sets they're they're using. That's an, that's a future episode. How's yeah, that sound? Perfect. Um, Estimating you know, an, wood duck breeding population. Another size. question that you could probably answer very easily is, you know, the comment that was on there about sea ducks, and why are sea ducks not in this particular survey? Well, sea ducks are. That's probably also one where I need to get somebody who really knows what they're talking about with this. Um, sea duck. There are some sea ducks that are encountered and uh, and recorded Mm -hmm. during these surveys. I think the issue is that the survey doesn't cover enough of their breeding range to generate like highly precise, highly accurate um, estimates of their population size. And so the last thing you want to do is just kind of submit uh, or present an estimate that that you don't have confidence in, right? And that that doesn't cover a significant portion of their breeding range. There are other surveys that are conducted uh, for certain groups of sea ducks. Uh, I, you can actually get uh, data on scoter population estimates from the, from these surveys areas. They have those and because they can record that data, but you're probably not going to have real tight confidence intervals on them. Um, and and there are some species that we're just still trying to learn about in terms of their the, the areas that form the core of their breeding range. I think there have been some experimental sea duck breeding population surveys here in recent times. And the other thing that I know is that sea ducks, there there are special surveys during winter. Uh, what do they call it? It's the A-maps and Go-maps. Uh, I think Fred Rutger mentioned that on a recent episode. 
They are uh, surveys designed to estimate sea ducks, seabirds, water birds in some of the offshore, nearshore areas along the Atlantic Atlantic coast and then in, in the Gulf Coast as well. So uh, the the all the, the Fish and Wildlife Service and state partners are still trying to figure out the best way to estimate some of those populations. And and there's probably more data out there than I'm aware of. And there certainly is on some of these more these more um, regionally confined populations or, or more region-specific populations, some of these sea ducks, harlequin ducks perhaps, long-tailed ducks perhaps. I'm not the best person to talk to about about sea ducks. We had to get an expert on here. We haven't even talked about geese. I'm also not the pr- best person to talk yeah. about geese, <laughs> but we're going to have some people talk about those going forward. Cool. So yeah, we, we have numbers for sea ducks, but they're just not, um, we just don't, they just don't lend themselves to a lot of, uh, you know, highly precise estimates from these surveys, the way they're designed. It's, you just can't get estimates for everything from one survey. Yeah. I like asking questions that you don't know the answer to. I know you to. do. You like seeing me squirm. Yeah. You're like, Ugh! And you're like, like how, flipping how the pages hedge? of your how report. Can, you're like getting all nervous. <laughs> no, but I think that's a perfect answer. And for someone who's posting that comment on Facebook, it's a good explanation um, where it's just like, hey, you know, this is an opportunity where we may not have the best information to be able to understand, you know, these breeding populations of birds. And and that and that could be potentially an eye-opener yeah. for someone. Yeah. You know, side note here, it is and – I, and I reflect on this occasionally. And we – we make sometimes we get frustrated by some of the nonsensical comments that some people will make, you know, and it, you get it all over the place, right? It's, it's, it, regardless of what it is you're talking about. But the thing that I take away from that is that how awesome is it that we have people, whether we agree with their opinions or the rationale behind their opinion or their statement or not, how great is it that we have? a constituency that is so engaged that they look into some of these reports that they form their own opinions. Some of them we don't agree with and some of them we would like to say, well, if you thought about it this way, I think you might find some greater, um, some some more, more defense there. But how great is it that we have a constituency that is so engaged and cares so much to ask a question about yeah. sea ducks? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's awesome. It is. And that is largely why we continue to have such great support for waterfowl and waterfowl conservation. And it, it's why they receive a lot of attention, you know, by our managers, by our conservationists. So, you know, keep it up in, in terms of your interest. Dig into all of this information. It's great that it's out there and it's great that people consume it. Yeah. And, you know, just to follow that up, uh, you mentioned mentioned it on our previous BPOP episode, but you can email any question uh, to Mike, <laughs> yeah. Dr. Mike yeah. Brazier for, right, and, and and that's easy. It's dupodcast <laughs> at ducks.org. That's dupodcast at ducks.org. Uh, we welcome the engagement. I kind of uh, opened that door, didn't you I? You did, and I like it. I think it's great. <laughs> Mike will respond immediately. Uh, not necessarily, but Mike, but Mike, do you have anything before we wrap this show yeah, up? Yeah, just, I just want to add something onto that. Um, I was talking to Dr. Tom Mormon a little while ago. Uh, I guess it was in July, and we were talking about, he was asking about the podcast because he's been on a couple of times. And he said, man, I bet y'all have about covered every topic possible by now. And that I said, we haven't even scratched the surface. We haven't even so gotten you through. Have no idea. Going done three species profiles. It, it is incredible. And it, and that question about sea ducks, why are there not sea duck estimates in here? Why are there not wood duck in, estimates in here? That is a great example of of why I responded the way I did. I said, dude, we haven't even scratched the surface because an answer of, well, we just don't know isn't the right answer. We do know, and there are lots of people that have spent thousands of hours trying to figure out a way to do that yep. very thing. And there have been decades of research conducted and data collected to inform those analyses and 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 I we don't know all of those details but all of those details are really important you know from understanding how it's happening and what's happening and and so yeah it, it's that's just a perfect example of kind of how all of this comes together and we have so much information so much going on in the waterfowl community 
And, and it's pretty cool to be able to bring those experts to this table to discuss those things that they've been working on and to share with the people that care about it. Absolutely. we got to find a C-Duck specialist yeah, now. That's right. So. Well, Mike, this has been fantastic. I hope everyone's enjoyed Mike's breakdown of all of these numbers and, and digging into uh, some of the specifics of what these numbers mean and what they can mean for waterfowl hunters and our listeners. Uh, so it's been fantastic. Yeah, I've enjoyed it, Chris. I'd like to thank my co-host, Dr. Mike Razor, for dig- getting into the weeds with some of these BPOP numbers and, and kind of allowing people to, to understand what these numbers mean to them. I'd like to thank Chris Isaac for being awesome and putting the show together and getting it out to you. I'd like to thank the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Canadian Wildlife Service, and state agencies, and everyone who worked on the waterfowl survey uh, this year and every year all in the past. And I'd like to thank you, the listener, for joining us on the DU Podcast and supporting wetlands conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash dupodcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.